We would like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people who are the traditional custodians of the land on which Wirroni is created. We pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging. We acknowledge that the name Wirroni was taken from the Wadi Wadi Nation without permission and we are striving to do better for future reconciliation. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Space Space, a space for all things space related. I'm your host, Annika. Firstly, happy National Science Week. National Science Week is Australia's annual celebration of science and technology. Running each year in August, it features more than a thousand events around Australia, including those delivered by universities, schools, research institutions, libraries, museums, and science centres. ANU has multiple National Science Week events, as do nearly all of the science societies here at ANU, so go check them out. This year's theme is Glass, More Than Meets the Eye, based on the UN International Year of Glass. Today we're being joined Hold on, by... Wait. Did you say International Year of Glass? Yes, of glass. And what does that mean? Um, all does things mean related to glass. We are celebrating glass no. <laughs> for this for an entire year. No, things like like microscopes and glasses. And oh, anything that has glass in it. Yes. Okay, makes sense. I got it. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> keep going. Today we're being joined, as we have seen, by my new co-host, Brad. And Hi. we'll be having some fun quizzing Brad on some obscure astronomy concepts later. Why don't you introduce yourself? I am Brad. I know nothing about space. I do not know... I do not even know what the word means. <laughs> I do know, however, that space is cool. Therefore, I am qualified to be on this show. Thank you, Brad. Very informative. I'm sure we'll be hearing some more insight from you later, but oh. let's, let's start with some astronomy news. Observing planets in the process of being born is quite challenging, but in recent years, astrophysicists have used radio telescopes to capture images of glowing disks of material around young stars. This is sort of like peering into a planetary nursery. and We can look at things like gaps in the disk where planets are born and how they sweep up dust and uh, gas onto their surfaces. You know what I imagine when you say planetary nursery? What, what do you imagine? Have you ever been to a preschool? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I went to one before I went to kindergarten. Did you? I could just imagine <laughs> a bunch of like little planets, got like little googly eyes. Oh my god! And they got like little faces, and they're all sitting and they're all sitting having story time and having naps. Oh my gosh, I love this idea of a planetary nursery. I'm sorry. Why do you imagine them having googly eyes? I, I don't know. It's funny. <laughs> You keep going. <laughs> <gasps> oh, no. <laughs> Where was I? So th they sweep up things like dust and gas. So in these nurseries, essentially, it's like lying in a pool of food and water. Oh you kind of just sweep it all in and use it to grow. Oh, please. So I don't think this is really like a human nursery. I would, I would honestly be okay with lying in a pile of food. <laughs> <laughs> Now, what's even rarer than this is to observe the smaller and fainter glowing disk of material swirling around to form a planet, from which moons may begin, um, be begin to accrete. These disks of material are known as circumplanetary disks, or CBDs, and we've only discovered two until now, and they were comprised of hot dust. Astronomers think that they found a third CBD, and it's not dust they're detecting, it's a faint emission of gas in the disk. While dust glows like a light bulb across a spectrum of wavelengths, the radiation emitted by gas only emits at specific wavelengths. Previous CPDs were roughly one astronomical unit in diameter, but this one around the star AS209 could be as large as 14 astronomical units across. How big 
is one astronomical unit. So an astronomical unit is the distance from the Earth to the sun. So now imagine oh, that geez. times 14. It's Gee. huge. It's a big boy. It's a, yeah, it's a really big boy. <laughs> Being able to survey the gas is an important milestone because gas makes up the vast majority of the material that forms stars and planets. The ratio of gas to dust is on the order of about 100 to 1. Hence, we need to study gas in order to fully understand CPDs and their capabilities of for forming planets and moons. Speaking of new planets, astrobiologists have found a potential ancient source of life-supporting oxygen. Although oxygen is now the most abundant element in our oceans and our atmosphere, comprising about 88.8% and 23.1% of the mass of the two, respectively, this wasn't always the case. In actuality, the abundance of oxygen on Earth arose only 2.4 billion years ago, thanks to the advent of photosynthesis, the process through which some of the first life forms transformed light into energy. It was only a coincidence, scientists say, that one of the products of this process was oxygen, but it would also go on to completely transform the planet, creating the conditions for increasingly complex forms of life. For all the importance of this so-called great oxidation event, scientists have always wondered about the presence of oxygen on the planet prior to the emergence of photosynthesis. Now, recent research in Nature Communications states that the shifting of geological faults could have produced hydrogen peroxide, an ancient source of hydrogen in Earth's earlier years. Though hydrogen peroxide harms microbial life in high intensities, in moderate amounts it also supplies an important source of oxygen. According to recent research, as geological faults shift in scorching areas of the planet's subsurface, they actually produce hydrogen peroxide as a result of oxygen. They potentially influence the early evolution of life. Uh, life. According to researchers, the constant shifting of the Earth's crust creates cracks and crevices throughout the subsurface of the tectonically active areas. These cracks and crevices are particularly sensitive. So, when water trickles down into the imperfections, it causes an important reaction. Researchers tested these uh, reactions with rocks common to the Earth's early crust, things like granite, basalt, and peridotite. They crushed rocks and added water to the fragments in oxygen-free conditions at a variety of different temperatures. Their simulations produced hydrogen peroxide, and therefore oxygen, at high temperatures approaching the boiling point of water. Now, this might seem quite inhospitable to life, but they actually overlap with the ideal conditions for a type of microbe called a hyperthermophile, which was one of the first forms of life on Earth. Ultimate wait, hold on. Yeah. Oh, okay, I've just caught on that we're not talking about... Wait, are we talking about Earth? Yes. Or, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was very confused for that whole second. I was like, are we talking about a different planet here? <laughs> I don't what? know what we're talking about. <laughs> Sorry, did I not specify that this was on Earth? You probably did. I'm just not very good at listening. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> Ultimately, though, researchers say that further research is necessary to fully understand the role of this process in supporting early forms of life on Earth. But seeing as we still don't know how life originated on Earth, it's a huge step forward. Finally, the International Astronomical Union, which is responsible for a variety of things in astrophysics, but they also name planets and stars and other celestial bodies, is offering the rare opportunity to name one of the 20 new exoplanets discovered by JWST. Annika. Yes. Name that planet. No. <laughs> Go. Um, um, well, well, it has to be of... Uh, Cultural, historical, or geological significance. Okay. 
Go. Well, JWST was launched in French Guinea. Maybe we could name it Guinea. Well. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying. Okay. What would you name it? Flumpy. Why Flumpy? Because it's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. In the interest of not naming planets after strange, stupid things, um, unfortunately... The IAU has said that you can't name a planet after things like your pet. What they want are teams of students, teachers, astronomy lovers, and astronomers of all levels to come together to decide a name. Is there a due date? We're getting to that. Okay. okay. (laughs) The proposed names should be of things, people, or places of long-standing cultural, historical, or geographical significance, worthy of being assigned to a celestial object. Hmm. The star and planet names should also uh, share a common theme. Once teams decide on the names, they must create and implement an outreach event related to exoplanets, like an event informing the public, in person or online, about exoplanets and their significance. Teams must also submit their proposal, outreach event, and why it should be chosen in a written prompt in English of no more than 300 words and a video in native languages no longer than three minutes. Submissions close on the 11th of November and voting will be done within the IAU from the 16th of December 2022 to the 16th of March 2023, with winners announced on the 20th of March. Okay, right. Mm -hmm. So you need to come up with names for all 20 of them. All 20 of them? Well, because they all have to have a common theme, right? I thought it was just one. No. Oh my gosh, there's 20 names they have to come up with. Why Why is this particular group... Of why is this particular is it planet? Yes. Okay, why is this particular group of planets so significant? Good question. Because I feel like every other name that we've kind of had, apart from the one in our soul, the ones in our solar system have been like they kind of sound like serial numbers. Yes, no, that I mean that's in the interest of keeping things simple for astrophysicists because there are so many. We're not going to remember all of them. But why these ones are significant is because they're the first exoplanets ever observed by JWST through mm. a range of techniques, mostly the transit method and direct imaging. I see. So they're significant in that sense. Ah. This is why it's open to the public and it's great publicity for um, JWST. That's pretty good. Yeah. Can we come up with some names? Sure. Maybe later. I don't have any ideas right now. I also don't have any ideas. Let's keep going. <laughs> Let's have a look at some astronomical events happening in the next few weeks. August 27th will be a new moon, perfect for stargazing if the weather permits, and conveniently on the same night, Mercury is at greatest elongation east. This is when Mercury and the Sun are furthest apart and is visible as an evening object that sets in the west after the Sun. Because Mercury is so small and so close to the Sun, it can be quite a challenge to observe and can sometimes be seen shortly before sunrise or soon after sunset. Do note that if you have binoculars or a telescope you intend to use for observation of anything close to the sun, do not try and observe while any part of the sun is above the horizon. <laughs> You'll be surprised how many people. Oh. As a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I used to have these really cool sunglasses. Uh-huh. I still do, but uh-huh. they're, different, they're different sunglasses. Mm-hmm. But I used to think that sunglasses would protect me from the sun. Uh-huh. So in the car, on the way to Sydney, (laughs) what I would do is I would look directly in the sun. (laughs) Because because sunglasses 
protect you from the sun. So obviously they must protect your eyes from the sun. So if you look at the sun, then you'll be okay. Yeah, I suppose. My eyes are fine. That's good to <laughs> I'm know. I'm very surprised that they are. I'm also <laughs> quite surprised. I'm glad you didn't blind yourself. Uh, looking back at the, the solar eclipse that happened in America while Donald Trump was president, where he looked straight at the sun. Do you remember that one? <laughs> Wait, I don't remember this. You don't? <laughs> no, I don't remember this. There was a solar eclipse in the US. I don't remember which year. I think it might have been 2018, where there was this famous photo of Donald Trump standing <laughs> on the White House balcony, oh. looking up at the sun with no protection. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> It's great because I remember last year there was a lunar eclipse where um, actually the light that uh, that um, that's emitted is a lot dimmer because it's being covered up. Um, and I had a couple people come up to me and ask whether they should be wearing sunglasses or eye protection for that one. And I was very glad to tell them that of all astronomical events, you definitely don't need sunglasses for that one. Oh, yeah. Yes. Those are the ones to watch out for. Yes. At yeah. least I was smarter than Trump. That's true. Yes. It's not a very high bar. <laughs> <laughs> you were also a child, so it's okay. Donald Trump was a 78-year-old man. Yes. <sighs> September 10th is the harvest moon, the full moon closest to the September equinox. The September equinox is the moment when the sun crosses the celestial equator due to the fact that Earth's axis is tilted about 23 degrees in relation to the ecliptic, an imaginary plane created by Earth's orbit around the sun. In June, the northern hemisphere is tilted toward the sun and the subsolar point is north of the equator. As the Earth travels toward the opposite side of its orbit when it reaches December, the southern hemisphere gradually receives more sunlight and the subsolar point travels north. South, sorry. Oh, oh. <laughs> generally. <laughs> sorry, no misinformation here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> generally, the September equinox falls around the 22nd to the 24th of September. Now I think it's time to put Brad on the spot. I've done some research on four different astrophysics <coughs> concepts that, um, uh, that I'm hoping that he hasn't heard of before. And what we're going to do is we're going to ask Brad what he thinks uh, uh, these concepts mean, and then I'll give the actual explanation. Okay. You ready? Yes. Okay. Give it to me. Brad. Yes. What is nuclear pasta? You said that these are astrophysics terms. Yes, I promise it is. Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I promise. Have you ever been to space? No. <laughs> Have you ever been on a space station? No, I haven't. You know that on a space station, mm -hmm. people also get hungry. Uh-huh, Like yeah. they do on Earth. Mm, yes, that's correct. But from what I know... Mm -hmm. The only thing that they can have is dried food. Uh-huh. Or no, they can only bring on dry food. Do they, like, do they put water in it? Yeah, so it's all freeze-dried. Ah, okay, okay, yeah. okay, okay. I see, I see, I see. Nuclear pasta uh -huh. is actually a way to make proper food mm -hmm. on a space station. Have you ever used a pasta machine? I have not, but they look very cool. They're so fun. <laughs> <laughs> They're so fun. I used to have one... Uh, uh, when I used to, when I was living in Malaysia, I used to have one, um, and you can like, you can, like put all these like extensions, and they churn out different pasta. It was really cool. Oh my gosh! But this particular pasta machine, mm -hmm. designed for nuclear pasta, mm -hmm. if you want, injects uranium two six five 
into the dough as you are turning it. Mm-hmm. And then when you cook it, it glows. Uh-huh. And who doesn't want glow in the dark pasta? <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> I got to be close. <laughs> what? Thank you for your excellent explanation. You're welcome. You're just a tiny bit off. Okay. Basically, when a supergiant star between 10 to 25 solar masses, and solar masses is about the mass of the sun, so this is 10 times that to 25 times that, Jeez. when it collapses, it can form a neutron star. And neutron stars are stars entirely comprised of neutrons. No protons or <laughs> electrons, so there's much less force repelling each atom within the star. So it's extremely dense. Most neutron stars are city-sized, maybe 20 kilometers in diameter, but they still have a mass of about 1.4 times that of the sun. That would be if you took if you took a teaspoon of matter from a neutron star, it would weigh more than every single person on Earth combined. Damn, that's a pretty strong teaspoon. <laughs> <laughs> the gravity is about two billion times stronger than gravity oh, on Earth. That's rough. So an immense amount of pressure is put on the core. The neutrons within the star get so distorted and crushed, they turn into what astrophysicists call nuclear pasta. And the funny thing is, they have classifications for different types of nuclear pasta, oh my gosh. such as gnocchi, <gasps> oh my God. spaghetti, waffles, lasagna. Waffles isn't even a pasta. Wait, is, your wa- yeah. is waffle a pasta? Or is it not? No, no it's, it's not it's a pasta. It's definitely not a pasta. And we also have anti-spaghetti and anti-gnocchi. Anti-spaghetti. Yes. So anything that isn't spaghetti. Not quite. So the pasta layer lies on the inner crust, a transitional zone between a neutron star's outer crust and the core. On top of this layer, the nuclei form blobs, and we call those gnocchi. Oh, my gosh. Deeper down, they join together into cylindrical shapes that we call spaghetti. More pressure, and the spaghetti compresses into lasagna, flattish sheets of nuclear matter. (laughs) Then the pasta transitions into antipasta. These sheets of lasagna form cylindrical hollows where neutrons begin leaking out, which we call anti-spaghetti. And finally, when the pressure is high enough, these hollows break into small bubbles, which is what we call (laughs) 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 anti-gnocchi. I love this so much. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) I'm pretty sure anti-pasta is... Actually, a term in Italian cooking. Oh, you mean antipasto? Ah, uh, yes. Close, close. Yeah, it's deceptive because antimatter is an actual thing, and anti-spaghetti is doesn't have anything to do with an antimatter version of spaghetti. I see. So this neutron star, yes, is literally a pasta machine. I suppose so. It's like a gigantic ball of pasta. So where does the nuclear bit come from? Well, because we're dealing with nucleuses. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually where the term nuclear comes from. It just means small. It has nothing to do with (laughs) nuclear bombs or anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. (laughs) (laughs) uh, So this is a theoretical substance, but essentially if it's proven true, then nuclear pasta would be one of the strongest things in the universe. Damn. Mm. Get me some of that, please. (laughs) Looks like we'll only have time for maybe one more. So let's see. Hmm. Okay. Brad? Yes. What's a strange star? It's pretty strange, isn't it? (laughs) 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 Oh, no. (laughs) Okay. Have you ever heard of. 
this. I honestly don't know what a... Oh, I have no idea. You're going to have to tell me I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> so, a strange star is a hypothetical star comprised of strange quarks. So. Oh, I know of those. Yes, yes. yes. So quarks are what subatomic particles like protons and neutrons are made of, and most matter is made up of just two of the six, up and down quarks. But we also have top and bottom quarks and strange and charmed quarks. They come yes. in three pairs. Yes. Strange quarks were first observed in cosmic rays, but don't appear to play a role in ordinary matter, so we don't see them that often. Hence, we think that strange stars may be the cause, uh, cause behind fast radio bursts, which is a transient radio pulse lasting from a millisecond to three seconds, caused by currently unknown high-energy astrophysical processes. Right. So basically what is happening is we're detecting these fast radio bursts and we have no idea where they're coming from. I see. It's kind of right. creepy when you think about it. That is creepy. Basically. What if it's an alien? Could it be alien? See, that's funny because when pulsars were first discovered by Dame Jocelyn Bell, um, her and her supervisor thought that the regular pulsing of the star as it faced Earth and then faced away were, uh, were aliens, and they called them little green men before oh. they discovered that it was a star emitting light and rotating at a very constant rate. I see. Mm -hmm. I want to know where we got the image of an alien from. Why are they stereotypically green humanoid figures with really big eyes? Well, humans are quite narcissistic, so that... Oh, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> Do you believe in the existence of aliens? I mean, in some form, there must be some sort of life somewhere else. The universe is this big. Yeah, no, it would be impossible. There are hundreds and uh, hundreds, millions and billions of galaxies and stars. There's no way that we're the only life forms on Earth. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. yeah. So, basically, neutron stars form because pressure is so great that normal atoms like hydrogen and helium simply fall apart. So in this case, protons and neutrons simply fall apart, which leaves their constituents, quarks. Okay. Quarks. Quarks. They're named weird. Yes, they are. Up, down, top, bottom. Strange charmed. Why strange and charm? Where did those come from? You know did what? Did they just run out of directions? <laughs> 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 you know what? I have no idea. Okay. And on that note, Thank you for tuning in to oh the dear. space space. I'm Annika. Uh, I am. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Brad. <laughs> and we'll see you next week. Yes. Yeah.